The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. And I wish I could say the same for our elected leadership. You know, the American Recovery Act passed the Senate 50 to 49 on Friday night. You've heard all the good things that are related to ending the pandemic. And they actually account to a little less than half of the bill. The other half of the bill sets up the permanent federal budget framework for the largest expansion of the so-called social safety net since Social Security and Medicare. In fact, it's a greater expansion of the social safety net than Social Security and Medicare because those required that the taxes be paid for several years before the benefits began to flow. In a nearly 600-page bill, the most progressive members of the House of Representatives ignored the results of both their own presidential primary and the general election, a general election that cost 15 moderate Democratic seats to the Republicans. As the presidential nominee, Joe Biden was the, air quotes, moderate, air quotes, candidate who spoke about unity, bipartisanship, incremental change, support for the middle class. He rejected Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, free four-year college for all, a guaranteed basic income, and he did champion the $15 minimum wage. And I think we'll get to a minimum wage increase at some point in the not far distant future. But What makes the American Recovery Act so significant is that under the cover of COVID emergency, the Democratic leadership steamrolled its members toward all the far left policies voters rejected in the Democratic primaries and in the November general election. And that explains the inordinate haste with which the Republican compromise was rejected and all committees of appropriation were bypassed. It was a bill created by the leadership and passed directly to the floor. It was why no adjournment could be allowed during the Senate debate process, even if it kept the 86-year-old presiding officer of the Senate in the chamber all night long between Friday and Saturday. Democratic leadership, including the president and the vice president, knew if that bill stalled, it was game up and game over. While the new entitlements are temporary, and I put that in air quotes, it's an important axiom of modern American governments that you shouldn't forget. Once a benefit is granted, it is never rescinded the new entitlements will be made permanent, just as repeal and replace Obamacare was never gonna happen, okay? These new entitlements will be made permanent, either through regular order or under another reconciliation bill. 
these benefits will remain in place at least until 2025 under some conveyance, because in 2025, the middle-class tax cuts in the Trump tax bill expire and a new tax bill will be required to continue, improve, or rescind the 2017 package. All of these new or improved entitlements are positive developments for poor and middle-class Americans. Nobody's arguing that point. The child credit is converted in this new methodology from a annual tax deduction to a monthly cash payment made during the current tax year to obviously the recipient parents or guardian. So, and the maximum allowance increases, child credit increases from $2,000 a year for every child until age 16 to $3,000 a year for every child from age five through age 17. Infants to five-year-olds get $3,600 a year. The plan is to start to send monthly checks to eligible taxpayers, so it's up to $150,000 a couple, in July with the balance of this year's allowance taken as a tax deduction. The one concern about this new entitlement is that it separates the child credit from actual employment taxes. The new entitlement eliminates all current and future work requirements for receiving the tax credits. So if a parent is no longer required to have some form of work, okay, in order to get these payments for their children, it is the first step toward a universal basic income. And a universal basic income was rejected early in the democratic primary process. But here it is, folks, just a nose under the tent. But you see, converting the child tax, the child credit into a reliable cash flow that happens during the current year helps parents at the lower and middle income levels to better budget their resources. It's a better solution than getting a check from the government once a year in the year, half a, half a year into the next tax year, uh, which is how um, we currently do it. So for example, the benefit becomes a single mom with two school-aged children would get $700 a month or $720 a month um, or half of the rent on a pretty nice two-bedroom apartment in either Ohio or Georgia. Because those were the two steps I just, gra I just randomly wanted to see what that would do in two separate states one that voted Republican, one that voted Democratic in the last election. And so I sampled Ohio and Georgia. So it really would help. And in a government guarantee, and that's what it really is, you know, however, whatever term you want to use, it's a govern, gov government guarantee of nearly half the monthly rental income on a reasonably nice two-bedroom apartment in those states makes it easier for that single mom to obtain good housing, makes the risk to the landlord significantly less. So the numbers, the 3,600 and 3,000 um, 
depending on the child's age, come directly from a bill Republican Mitt Romney introduced in the Senate in early February. So they've got the right numbers. They've got bipartisan support on what the child credit should be. The difference is Romney's proposal puts more structure in place. It leaves less uh, of how the money is going to be distributed to the bureaucratic imagination in the rulemaking process that comes the, the step between legislation and actual disbursement. And most importantly, the Romney proposal is a permanent change that is paid for by eliminating several temporary emergency anti-poverty programs that have proved themselves failures over the years, but still endure because of base plus budgeting methodology, which we can talk about someday, it'll bore you, but it's probably something people need to know about. <clears throat> the second big entitlement change for families is a doubling of the child care that's a, you know, if you if you have to pay for childcare, it's a doubling of that credit for one full year. So, in other words, in the tax year 2020 and tax year 2021 is the year in which that increase in the childcare credit will take place. Um, because and it's and it's a way it is a way to jumpstart the economy because coupled with efforts to get more schools open, it's correctly seen as a way to help moms get back in the workplace. However, I expect before or during the 2022 midterms, Congress will attempt to make the $10,000 a year ceiling for childcare deductions. That's for two children or more. Okay, permanent. Again, it's good policy. I think it's good to have a reasonable number. If you're really paying 10K for health, for childcare a year, it really does change the incentives that a mother has in terms of working full-time, working part-time, et cetera, in terms of, you know, especially professional women um, in how you participate in the labor market. So I think it's very good policy. But the problem is, if you're going to make it permanent, which clearly they will do, it needs to be paid for. Either you need to eliminate some existing program or you need to raise some form of taxes, a theme you will hear me repeat after employment and business revenue improve post-pandemic. In other words, around the fourth quarter of this year or first quarter of next year. Additional state and local funding, there's $350 billion. Well, they, they started to tell us, oh, well, you know, you gotta rehire all the furloughed staffers, et cetera. Well, actually most of the major states have actually seen their tax revenues rebound. California actually has a $15 billion surplus. Um, and so no, in fact, this 350 billion dollar bill is an infrastructure bill. Pete Buttigieg, the new Secretary of Transportation, admitted as much to Nicole Wallace during his Monday appearance on Deadline White House. This is a down payment, in fact, on a multi-year infrastructure spending plan for water treatment and sewers and the like. While I applaud all efforts to repair inner city water and sewage treatment plants, for example, in Flint, Michigan or Jackson, Mississippi, funding these programs 
at the federal level should be loans repayable to federal taxpayers, not hidden COVID relief slush fund money. Because if it's COVID relief slush fund money, it begs the question, since when are municipal water systems a federal responsibility? What are municipal and state taxes for, if not for these local priorities? So there's $350 billion, which is real money, you know, guys, um, that is being borrowed by the federal government and given to the states with, for local priorities without any local taxpayer uh, reimbursement to the federal government. I know here in California, the plan is to use it to build homes for the homeless. <clears throat> and homelessness is not a COVID-related problem for us. It's a chronic problem for us. Um, and it's a subject for a very different discussion. So if we look just a step further, buried even deeper into the American Recovery Act, there is a provision for tax forgiveness for student loan debt. So in other words, given the parliamentary restrictions that were imposed, they couldn't actually pass tax, uh, student loan forgiveness itself in the American Recovery Act, but they created the tax forgiveness portion in anticipation of creating student loan debt forgiveness, either in a subsequent standalone bill or through an executive order. So you and I, the taxpayer, we need to keep an eye peeled for that forgiveness to come because I suspect it will come buried in some other absolutely necessary spending like when it comes time for a continuing resolution in October. Blanket forgiveness of student debt is not supported by either the public or more moderate senators on the Democratic side of the aisle. President Biden campaigned against Elizabeth Warren's proposal for college debt forgiveness. He won, she lost. And yet here is the prospect already planned and budgeted for. Reforming student debt, the entire cost and the manner of college is a subject ripe for study and debate, leading to real reform, to 21st century reform. But teaching our next generation that it's okay to run up a debt and then refuse to pay the bill is not just socially corrosive, it's fiscally irresponsible. So I ask you, what's gonna come next? Remember liar mortgage loans in 2008? Are we going to next allow liar mortgage loan forgiveness after we get through with student loan forgiveness? There is also protection in the bill for private multi-employer pension funds. That's necessary as we've seen more older workers depend on these funds earlier than they had planned as a result of both economic dislocation and the pandemic. This is also a payback to the unions, but it's one that I think we should all applause because it's a wise thing to do. The only thing is that to make it permanent, we've got to look to some future source of funding 
which could be, let's say, a fee charged to participating employers or some other insurance program payment mechanism. But some way, we can't just keep saying, yeah, we'll pay that, we'll pay that. Where's it going to come from? Because I could go on and on, but you get my drift. The American Relief Bill adds another trillion dollars to the permanent baseline budget of the federal government without a single thought given to how it will be paid for, except by increased borrowing. Our total national debt will exceed our gross domestic product after the signing of this bill into law. Want me to repeat that so you get, you're sure you get it? Our total national debt will exceed our gross domestic product after the signing of this bill into law. Now, when they separate out, separate out public debt, it'll be about 75 or 80% of the total gross domestic product. But the fact is that this debt is bigger in dollar volume than our gross domestic product. A Washington Post columnist recently remarked that government has reached the point of selling new treasury notes to raise cash to pay the interest on the debt. Now you try that with your household. That's the equivalent of getting a new credit card so that you can pay the interest on your existing credit cards. At that point, you're looking at bankruptcy. No matter how socially or economically equitable and proactive this legislation is, as soon as this pandemic is truly in our rear view mirror, the United States of America needs to stop spending and start paying for that spending through sound budgeting. And that includes infrastructure spending. We've got to pass budgets by each appropriating committee doing its work in each House of Congress, investigating, considering, compromising, and then we need to put the budget together and have it freely debated, freely amended, openly discussed, the pros and the cons. And then we've got to seek a consensus between the center core of both Democratic and Republican caucuses. A consensus is something the American people can trust. I would hope, although Republicans in the last few years have been just as spendthrift as Democrats. President Biden can continue to build on rebuilding, but he needs a presidential commission to help him to do it. He needs a repeat of Simpson-Bowles during the Obama administration, except that this time, the commission's findings must be binding and implemented by Congress. Whatever the 10 or 20 year plan the commission devises has to share the pain equitably among all Americans, regardless of economic status, politics, ethnicity, or any other qualifiers. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? 
Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.